Coming to you from Chapman University in Orange, California, it's Ask Science Mike Live! You've got questions, he's got answers, even though he may not understand, he'll talk anyway. You've got problems, he won't solve them, but he'll talk and talk and talk until he's blue in the face. Science made their life. Welcome to Ask Science Mike, the weekly podcast where I answer your questions about science, faith, and life. Of course, this week we're doing a live episode, so the questions are unfiltered and the answers unrehearsed. So anything I say could be absolutely wrong. Please use Google to verify any questions. I also want to mention that my wonderful hosts here at Chapman University are just hosting, so any random thing that comes out of my mouth does not represent their opinion First faculty, staff, students, or literally any person who's heard of Chapman University. I'm here tonight as part of an amazing series, which is a, an interstices, a word I'd never heard before today. And so if you want to come back on February 13th, they're going to have a talk about emotion and artificial intelligence that features none other than Lisa Joy, the co-creator of Westworld. Like, I can't even believe that. Man, it's going to be a big upgrade for me. February 23rd, I'll be in San Diego for Revive 2018 with a bunch of people I personally can't wait to hear, including Melissa Green, Brandon Robertson, and my bro, Jonathan Martin. And finally, if you're interested in meditation or the Enneagram, the Liturgists are launching courses on both. You can learn more by going to shop.theliturgist.com. But that's enough announcements. We've got a show to do, so let's get it started. Hello. Hi. Welcome. Um, so it seems like a lot of people are arguing these days, and a lot of it has to do with what you believe, what you think, what you don't believe, and what you don't think. Um, seems to be, be a big part of that argument. Is, is there a chance that what we believe and what we think is not a choice? That's not <laughs> something we actually get to decide, um, or is it just something, is just something that just happens to us? Also, is it, is a choice in what you think and how you feel, is it binary? Is it like either you believe or you don't, or you think or you don't, or is it one big sliding scale and we should all just chill? What okay. I love it when the first question is an unanswered philosophical and epistemological dilemma. <laughs> That tells me a lot about the audience, where we will go together, and uh, the amount of imposter syndrome I'll experience on stage. Um, so I'll give you my best take on what smarter people say wrestling with that issue. Uh, it is extremely unlikely that we select our beliefs through some act of cognition or volition. A thought experiment. Can anyone with true sincerity look at me and believe that I am a hot dog stand? I, I, I get it, the jokes write themselves. <laughs> Internet, I rub my belly, they can't see. Um, but anybody here, seriously, if you do raise your hand, I'll. 
I won't quiz you. Nobody? Not a hot dog stand? What if I hold my hand like an umbrella? And my hand like a little lever where the hot dogs come from? Not lever. What, lid? It's a lid? That's a word. No? Still no hot dog stands. Okay. So clearly, uh, we bring things in through our senses. They get processed through a linguistic map of reality, and they get assigned labels. Now, we love categorizing things, right? So sometimes our beliefs are relatively binary. Is this bottle, is the label, is it blue or is it orange? If we polled the room, probably get a very comfortable consensus around blue. Maybe we wouldn't identify this as a spectrum of blue-orangeness. We would just call it blue. I start with the simple stuff because it gives me time to vamp and think about the harder stuff. What I've been reading and researching says that beliefs are survival mechanisms. We westernize them. We tend to think of them as some, like, various fidelity description of reality. Um, But what I'm seeing in cognitive sciences and neuroscience is beliefs are just survival mechanisms that are largely formed in conjunction with social identity. People's beliefs don't tend to vary that much from the labels they assign themselves. So as soon as you call yourself something, human, man, woman, non-binary, Republican, atheist, whatever labels you assign to yourself, your brain starts to unconsciously filter new information against what you assume those labels believe, what those tribes believe, and you start to unconsciously filter out things that are separate from your label, unless you're a nonconformist. And then nonconformists find social labels, and they're free thinkers, right? No. They just find whatever the, the social consensus is, and then they think the opposite. <laughs> like when we research nonconformists, they're, they're literally just like, they take the and and they turn it into an or. They, ju- they just flip the bit. They like love, they feel self-styled. They're like, I'm the only person who dresses in all black, right? Like, it's just me. Everybody else wearing all this color. Then they go to Manhattan, and then they have to wear pink, I guess. I don't know. But so, like, we have these different survival strategies that make us look like we might be having higher degrees of individual choice and belief selection. But I'm pretty... I've heard the competing camps, and I'm just not, not a big believer in human... I don't believe in free will. I think we might have constrained will with some agency, or we're just automatons. I'm not entirely sure. And that applies also to our belief selection. We believe things that increase our chances of survival. It's very rare that Homo sapiens draw a line in the sand about a belief and make it life or death unless they imagine some narrative in which rebelling against the common belief creates a better outcome for them or people they care about in the future, right? So through that lens, the kind of incredible risks people take in justice work and social convention makes sense because they're imagining a better future. But then, like, why would Copernicus risk so much 
just based on where the sun is. So it's not a perfect theory, but even then I think someone like people who have visions of, of truth based on fact claims, all they're doing is saying, I got to go with what my senses are telling me. There's too much dissonance compared to the, the tribal thinking. And then even that makes sense. Because if we only believe things tribally, and the tribal beliefs get too far from reality, and the whole tribe decides, you know what, no matter what happens, as long as we stay right here, we'll always have food and the valley will never flood, you got to have at least a dissenting voice every now and then, because eventually everywhere is going to flood, at least from tectonic action, right? But Everest has sea life on it, right? It used to be a little land. So... I fall very much on the position that our beliefs are things our brains form in accordance with the principles of natural selection, which might be a little strange for someone who gets really obsessed with the Jesus stuff. Uh, and then I just say that's also evolution at work, because this, the type of thinking that leads me to realize humans are so constrained in their beliefs and their actions, um, it's not terribly animating and uses a very particular and limited network in my brain, and sometimes it's nice to switch hemisphere, hemispheres in the brain and look at things more holistically. Um, and so I just kind of let myself do both of those, but I only like make fact claims this way. That was probably a bottom 20% in satisfaction for the first show, first question on a show. I would like that as the fourth question. That does be real. The question was perfect. My answer, sub, sub bar. All right. Can you expand on I don't believe in free will? <laughs> <laughs> don't mind if I do. Um... What would free will even be? Have you thought about that? Free will sounds like omnipotence. I will myself to float off of this stage. I'm making a sincere effort. This is not just a joke. Nothing. Okay? I will myself, because I can't control the external world, that makes sense, that's ridiculous. Mike, you're oversimplifying free will, fine. I will myself to be terrified right now. Nothing. I almost said elated, but I'm an easy laugh. I might laugh at my own joke and then mess up my example. When we look at human behavior, we find that there's a, there's a patch of tissue about the size of a quarter, about the thickness of a tortilla behind your forehead on both sides called the prefrontal cortex. That's where neuroscientists believe that will and agency and executive function live in the brain. And we experience life as a series of choices that we make, right? So if one of you uh, threw a wrench at me, please don't if you have a wrench. Would it, if one of you threw a wrench at me, hypothetically, 
and I ducked. I would say I chose to duck so I didn't get hit by the wrench. That was my choice. What we understand by looking at brain imaging is that the part of our brain that makes choice is way, 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 way too slow to dodge a wrench. If we had to wait on our conscious will and agency to dodge wrenches or wolverines or falling rocks, there'd be no people. So lower structures, and I mean physically lower, not like <laughs> amygdala's dumb. No, it's ancient, but it's, it's lower in the brain. Just because those things execute action for us creates an unsettling picture of the self, right? But this happens all the time. Your life is full of not just objective information coming in through your senses, but conflicting structures in the brain that want to do different things in relationship to the information. So your visual cortex looks at a screen, and on that screen there are dots that get formed through a pretty abstract process into numbers in your cognition that let you know it's payday, right? Money is in the account, yes. And part of your brain says, you know what we should do. Just hear me out. We should rent a bouncy house. <laughs> we should rent a bouncy house to celebrate the new car we're going to go buy. Because the new car would be awesome. We'd enjoy it. People would think we're cool. It would signal economic stability, which would increase our chances of finding a mate. Let's do this. New car. Then another part of your brain goes, you know what would be amazing with that money? Compound interest. And not starving when we're 82. <laughs> right? So these two parts of the brain kind of square off, and they fight. And after a while, they kind of call for a vote where the rest of the brain structures weigh in, right? And parts of the brain go, uh, what's, what's numbers? I'm non-linguistic. I just make the heartbeat, right? But you, you get this very strange activity across your entire neurological lattice that then sums to a decision. So sometimes you decide, I'm not going to get a bouncy house and buy a car. And to do that, that uses willpower, and that literally burns a chemical your brain produces, so you decided, I'm not going to get a bouncy house and buy a car, even though I want to. And that's fine, but it means later, when you walk past a donut shop and you're out of willpower chemical, you go get a donut. And we found in research that if you hadn't struggled with decision earlier, you'd have more ability to resist the donut later because your will comes from your brain. So when I say I don't believe in free will, I mean that the decisions we make are constrained by the behavior of the system that produces our perceived will, one last thing. I said this, the prefrontal cortex, the quarter to tortilla thick behind your forehead that makes all your decisions, executive function, we're finding out that's kind of wrong. Sometimes it makes decisions, but most of the time it just narrates what happens, and in its narration it says, I did that. So when you dodge a wrench... Your narrator, who wants to be the hero of your story, went, I did that. That was my choice. Yeah. You interview somebody who did something heroic because of adrenaline in their animal brain, and they go, you know, in that moment, 
I just knew if I didn't jump in the icy lake, Bobby Sue was going to dr- drown. Bobby Sue, where did I get that? <laughs> but they didn't like take an objective pros and cons. They acted on animal instinct, and later the narrator went, I did that, I gotcha, right? We do this also when we do things we don't approve of. The narrator starts to rationalize why it went against its own set of moral codes. If we had free will, by the way, would we ever go against our own moral codes? Like, I believe this is wrong, I did it. Narrator goes, because these reasons. In fact, evolutionary biologists believe that our ability to reason was not born out of a need to find fact, but to convince other human brains to go along with whatever we're talking about. <laughs> that's, where, that's where the great rational capacity of Homo sapiens came from. Not to rationally discern what is true, but to convince other people our idea is the good one. So I'm not saying we're completely predetermined automatons, but I'm saying there's a lot of constraints that face us with each and every decision that we make, and that we should be considering the constraints on human decision-making and how we structure society with government governance, with how we structure advertising. You know what happens when you use algorithms to use machine learning to find out really accurate probabilistic data fields on how human decisions are made? You can swing elections for a couple thousand dollars, right? What if there's worse things we can do with that kind of insight into human behavior than just swing elections towards an orangutan? So, um, sorry. Now, <laughs> this is a non-judgmental space, so you're free to think he shouldn't have said that. Your opinion is just as valid as mine in here, okay? I was never political until November 8th of last year. So, um, we should consider that in the criminal justice system. We act like people made this decision, and now because of their volition, they should be punished. I mean, I don't know. By the data, that doesn't really alter human behavior or create a deterrent. But when we look at the constraints of human cognition and create rehabilitative strategies and create different incentive structures around behavior, what do you find? Then you can't even find enough people to commit crimes to put in prison. That does happen in cultures in the world that use a more pragmatic approach to human will than our beloved Enlightenment-era take on crime and punishment. Hello, Mike. Hi. Hi. Um, I had a non-sciencey question for you, Sweet. but um, I was curious. Just within the you know today's like conservative fundamentalist um, church, I was curious what your thought might be on the future. What it'll look like when you start seeing a lot of the baby boomer generation kind of transitioning out from senior leadership, and what it'll look like maybe when millennials kind of start to move upwards towards those positions, um, maybe what even your hope is for what that'll look like. Um, I know you're, I think you're a part of a Methodist congregation. I am a Methodist, yes. Yeah. Which is like not saying a lot because I think like 
H.W. Bush and Hillary Clinton were both Methodists, so it's a pretty, <laughs> it's a pretty big tent. Awesome. Yeah, I just want to get your thoughts on that. Okay. I got lots of thoughts on that. Um, here's the thing. This surprises people. I don't hate conservative churches or denominations or politically conservative people. Uh, before the rampant populism and nationalism that's facing our country right now, there was actually a pretty vital dialogue between two ideological positions in governance. That's important if you can have a two-party system. You really need two functioning parties. And in terms of Christianity having an impact on the world, the incredible selective pressures of a non-state mandated relatively open democracy of the United States created an era of theological innovation like we've never seen in human history, and definitely not in church history. It is the very environment with separation of church and state that produced American evangelicalism. It was not possible without a place where you, if you got mad at your church, you could just start another one and nobody would cut parts of your body off. So, I'm really grateful for things that I learned as a Southern Baptist. Really deeply grateful that they taught me if I was going to get married, I better make sure my wife was like the most important thing to me. And if I was going to have kids, I should like devote my time and energy to being a good father. I really like that the Baptist told me that God would listen to me when I prayed and that Jesus loved me. For a kid that got beat up a lot, that's how I made it. I don't love that my Baptist friends told me that all people are equal in the eyes of God right after members of my churches and my families opposed school desegregation based on biblical grounds. So my relationship with conservative Protestantism and evangelicalism specifically is complex. But last night, I sat in a room even bigger than this cavernous room, full of evangelical people. And they talked about Jesus, and they talked about the blood of Jesus, which is a thing I don't really talk about a lot anymore. And they sang worship songs, and I kind of felt like I was at youth camp. But they all meant it. And a musician came up and sang beautiful songs about their faith journey. And then one of the most talented preachers I've ever heard got on the platform and shared from their heart about suffering and pain and recovery and learning to protect others after we've been hurt. And the only thing you may have noticed if you're perceptive is I never used a gender-specific pronoun in that little monologue because everyone in the room and everyone on stage was a woman, except for me and like two other token husbands. Now, I love going to all women spiritual events. Because of uh, 
a thing that I think is a very accurate descriptor of how our society functions that scholars would call patriarchy, which is a very strong male preference in our society and a tendency to defer to men and to elevate men to positions of power, that's very much in the room in spiritual gatherings. And you get a room full of women, and any patriarchy in the room uh, gets kicked out with vehemence, right? So as I watch Nicole Nordeman and Jen Hatmaker talk about evangelical things through a theological lens I don't particularly identify with, something toxic was removed from evangelicalism by focusing on a woman's perspective. Here's another thing that I've noticed. The so-called death of the church in America is a white phenomenon. Who's leaving churches? White people. Why are white people leaving churches? Because what do white people need God for? We've got Escalades. We've got great school zones. We've got high-speed internet and almost all the money in the country. So why in the world do white people need Jesus? Jesus is fine for white people as long as he protects our property and our unique social standing. But when Jesus is revealed as a dark-skinned Middle Eastern man who stood in opposition to powerful empires, suddenly white people go, pass. Now, you might be listening to me right now, and you might feel a funny feeling of discomfort in your stomach. You might feel a little sick. You might feel a little angry, because you'd be like, why is he attacking white people? More specifically, why is he attacking me? And listen, I am not attacking you. I think you are a beautiful reflection of the spirit of a living God, whatever that means. What I mean is the social circumstances of our American country as filtered through a particular type of theological lens has created an unfair playing field that's gotten to the point that white people are abandoning religion for loneliness, isolation, and suicide. That's not my, like, Bible-thumping perspective. I'm not a biblical literalist. That's what happens when I look at sociological data. What are millennials doing that don't go to church instead? They're getting on Instagram and thinking everybody else is having fun but me. Everyone else has friends but me. And they're getting very, very lonely. And post-millennials are the most depressed and anxious generation in American history. So do I celebrate the fall of American Christianity? No, my friends, I mourn it. Except in the case where the death of religion means the death of empire and the possibility to promote universal equality among all people. So it's next. So what do I see about the future of American Christianity, specifically the conservative ilk. Black evangelicals aren't seeing declines in their church attendance. Hispanic and Latino churches don't have a missing generation. That's a uniquely white phenomenon. And so if evangelicalism 
wishes to continue to be a force in society and a force for good in the world and some alternative to loneliness, depression, and suicide, evangelicalism and conservative faith in America must learn to lift up women and people of color and women of color, and it must learn to do it now. Otherwise, time will do it for it because the meek are about to inherit the earth. So I pray for that. You know, I love the Methodists. They're so open-minded that they let me join. (laughs) But they're still super white. (laughs) They're just so white. And they, like, don't want to be white, and they're like, what could we do to be less white? (laughs) We should have a potluck. That'll reach millennials for sure, right? We should have a potluck. My gosh. Uh, there's a reason I'm, I still go to church. There's a reason despite, like, probably epistemologically, what am I, a materialist, like, atheist? Probably. But I pray every morning. If somebody tells a real compelling Jesus story, I'll just cry and cry and cry and cry. Because I believe... I believe in the power of that story of an empty tomb to transform lives and bring people together who otherwise could never be brought together. I went to a church in Tallahassee, Florida, where a lesbian couple and an NRA member sat next to each other every Sunday. And I just think we need more of that, not less. Hi. Hi. So. Oh, you got notes? I do have notes. Oh, here we go. Okay. (laughs) So my view of the world is often very bleak, and sometimes I'm tempted to subscribe to the idea that everything is absurd and chaotic, particularly morality. Uh, So I was wondering, are you persuaded by the idea that people are bound by categorical imperatives, whether they're from God or whether they're not? And in other words, is there a way to prove that people ought to act a certain way or that we have a particular responsibility to one another? Okay. Everybody hear that? Was that clear, the question for everybody? Can I rephrase? Objective morality, a thing or nah? Um, Categorical imperatives, which is quite beautifully stated. Uh, No, I don't think that there is some unquestionable morality. I think we assign moral values to things. Let me ask an expert on nature's morality. Uh, do, her, do volcanoes think about the foliage living on their slopes as they erupt? They do not because they don't think. Um, is it unethical when a lion eats a gazelle? Well, of course not. Lions starve to death. They don't eat gazelles. Is it unethical when tribes of lions befriend baby gazelles and their cubs play with them for a few hours, and then they kill and eat them? Because that, that's a thing. Felines, they got really big brains, right? So they can be like, this is a pretty cute little antelope. They can't get away. I, I mean, I, I saw footage once of a, a big lion cuddle, literally cutting, cuddling and licking this gazelle like it was its cub. 
And the little gazelle just like nestled up, and it was just like, oh, finally I'm safe. Yeah, that's the right reaction, because you know what's happening. This isn't a story where like years later, you see a pride of lions and a full-grown gazelle, and they just, humanama, humanama. No, they just have been the big lion, bit the little gazelle's head off. Is that like immoral? It's not immoral when a lion does it. If you have your neighbor's child over and you befriend and then eat it. Look at that. Hold on. I did it on purpose. That was not an accident. Did you feel that moral revulsion? Oh. Do you know what we're finding in research? A lot of this stuff is just like innate to the organ our DNA produces, right? Cultures are pretty much universally against incest. Just everybody just goes. Biologically speaking, the risks of a single generation of very close relatives reproducing, not really a thing. If a brother and a sister have a child, they don't like have a third eye that blinks. They don't, they're not missing a limb. It's very low risk. Over time, yeah, there's a huge risk. The taboo makes sense. But the amount of we make doesn't make sense. And I feel gross saying that because I have moral revulsion to my own words. Remember earlier we talked about different structures in the brain doing different things? I've learned to just let them all run and play how they wish. So, just because I don't think there's objective morality doesn't mean I don't think there's morality or a framework for making good moral decisions. This is what drives me crazy about theologians when you say, I don't think there's some unquestionable absolute moral authority. They go, well, then why don't you just kill everybody? <laughs> I don't want to kill anybody. And let's, let's be real, Okay. You can't see under these fancy blazer sleeves. I'm not packing any heat in the bicep department. Were I to successfully attempt to initiate a physical altercation in which my goal was to kill someone else, unless the other person is like six, I'm probably going down. I also, I don't have a lot of stamina, so if we're tussling, I'm going to get tired and then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to die. So there's like some incentive that's not objective for me to not going around killing people. Why don't I go around killing people other than empathy and being a decent freaking person? Because I don't want anybody to kill me. So we negotiate this societal thing that you know what's not cool? Murdering people. It's not controversial, mostly. Mostly. I mean, if the state doesn't do capital punishment, you know, maybe that's fine. But uh, generally, we agree murdering people, no. So, what does that mean? What we come down to with moral decisions is actually pretty simple reciprocity. I just, I want to be able to go through life. If I have some stuff, I don't want people taking it. I don't want to get killed. I don't want people killing my children. I don't want someone walking into my life and forcing me to have sexual intercourse with them. Like, there's all these things that are like my preference, and we all agree that's a pretty good preference. 
Let's just all do that. I think that's where morality comes from. And I think if we would stop trying to fight about what objective morality is or is not, because by the way, if there is moral, <laughs> if there is absolute moral objective values, who knows what they are and how do they know? Right? So even if they exist, if we can't with 100% certainty all agree on what they are, then that's the same as moral relativism anyway. Or if, if, if we're going for this, we create these situations where, no, because this is true, I refuse to compromise on what is moral in society, and if we can't agree on what's moral in society, we get what we have right now, and it's not exactly amazing, you guys, and girls and gender non-conforming people. So I just wish we'd admit all, we, all we're trying to do is set up moral boundaries so that people have a shot at a good life. That has some bigger implications, by the way. Is like my desire to <laughs> prime now a 65-inch television worth my great-grandchildren possibly being unable to farm food near the equator? Is it worth people living in conditions I would never live in to produce the television? So contrary from being some moral collapse, I think admitting to moral relativism actually elevates people to higher moral standards because you have to take a more holistic view of your actions and how they impact other people. Hi. Hi. Um, since we're in California, I just have a question about plate, plate tectonics and then um, earthquake predictions because they always say earthquakes are coming and I'm like, it's been eight years, man. Where are the earthquakes? Come on, news. Get it together. Mm -hmm. Thank you. <laughs> like, this is the most amazing place to live. If you've lived here a long time, you've forgotten. I just moved here from Florida. Do you know what's in Florida? Humidity, mosquitoes, and alligators. That's basically it. Just imagine this, take away all the dramatic mountains and make them flat. Um, imagine being surrounded by four obese people of the gender of your choosing who have just run five miles and are all panting in your direction. That's just the air in Florida. Okay, and now imagine amidst that, are mosquitoes plinking off your skin like rain, another thing you're unfamiliar with <laughs> in SoCal? So you're just constantly itching or feeling little pinches, which may carry disease. And then you're out for a jog and all of that, and you go, oh, shoot, alligator. <laughs> That's where I live. But whenever I start bagging on my home state, Floridians go, hey, you know what Florida's not going to do? fall into the ocean. No, it's going to sink beneath it. But either way, <laughs> we have a little thing on our planet that we don't like. The ground shakes sometimes. By the way, this is the reason we're here. Plague tectonics is amazing. You know what planet nearby doesn't have plague tectonic action? Mars. You know why? Its core froze solid, 
which killed its magnetosphere, which means the solar wind took all the atmosphere away over time. So if we stop having plate tectonics, no more earthquakes. Hey, Fonz. Um, that's great. Less great would be the loss of our atmosphere. <laughs> also, continuous solar radiation and everything dying of cancer pretty fast. So I'm a huge fan of plate tectonics. Uh, now, what you're getting at, though, long-term probabilities are tough for Homo sapiens, right? The question is not, will there be a major earthquake in Los Angeles? That's not up for dis debate. That's not, there's no question that at some point there's going to be such a major earthquake in Los Angeles that it's going to destroy most of the buildings and have incredible costs in human life. The question is, is that going to happen while I'm still in this apartment? <laughs> That's how our brains work, right? So, oh man, actually now I hate this question because I, I have to be honest and vulnerable to answer your question. So what did I do to mitigate my monkey brain tendency to delay important decisions when I moved to Los Angeles? I prepared for a major earthquake. I have not one, but two 55-gallon <laughs> barrels full of water, which I treated with a diluted bleach solution and put in the dark so they'll be safe for drinking 10 years from now. Bloop. That's a lot of water. That's not that much water when you realize how much water people need to drink, prepare food, and have basic sanitation. By the way, all that water, is, I'm assuming, it'll take at least three weeks for the city services or government services to provide me some form of water, and that's assuming I poop in trash bags in the toilet. Why did I say that so dramatically? Because you all got quiet and you just contemplated something terrible, which is not <laughs> being able to flush the toilet. That's the first thing that goes in even a minor quake. If you're going to do anything, get a stash of drinking water and just keep, you'll, you'll thank me, I promise, a package of big black trash cans. What do you do? You put the trash can in the bowl. You do what you have to do until it really won't hold anymore. Then you close the trash can, and you take it outside, and you dig a little trench that you just line your trash bags up in. All right? You also want some food? The right way to have some food? Again, you want to plan. At a big quake, you're just trying to plan three weeks until the National Guard can get to you. That's all you're doing. So you want to have extra food on hand. The best way to do that is to just always have more groceries than you need and to live out of that stash. Now here's the problem. You've got an undisciplined monkey brain. So you'll hear this podcast and you'll go to the grocery store and you'll overstock on food and then some Thursday night go, you know what? I don't actually have to go to the grocery store tonight. And you'll eat through your food stores and then revert to your old behavior, which is why I have barrels of freeze-dried food. Just little, little boxes. They're pretty cheap on Amazon, and by pretty cheap, I mean compared to starving to death. <laughs> All right, so we've got some water. We've got some freeze-dried food. Here's the other thing you're going to want. Work gloves, because your house is going to be messed up, right? So you don't want to cut yourself trying to navigate to the front door. 
You want a good pair of shoes and socks by your bed every night. Baby wipes. You want baby wipes. Why do you want baby wipes? Because you might not get a shower for six weeks. And you don't want to use your precious drinking water, bathing. If it's good enough for a baby's butt, it'll work on your face and your pits. Okay? <laughs> so we got some baby wipes. We got some shoes. We got, oh, and then the other thing I like to have, uh, you will not be tweeting. If we have a big one. Your cell phone is going to be a very fascinating piece of glass. <laughs> I have a weather radio because we can slap together a radio station with technology that's been around a long time. And uh, it has a crank on it and a solar panel. So I can charge it by putting it in the sun or cranking the crank, and then I can hear updates. Last thing, I also have uh, face masks that are disposable in case pollutants are released in the air or there's so much particular matter. Now, what am I describing? A hellscape. Absolutely. But believe me, if we have a big quake and you have food, water, trash bags, baby wipes, a radio, a flashlight, some work gloves, and a pair of shoes by your bed, I will probably get a letter from you one day. Because <laughs> you'd be like, well, you know what, I did have to like save for two months to make sure I had the money to buy that stuff, but I'm also alive to write this letter. Thanks, Science Mike. Oh, man. Now, the, here's the problem with what I just said. If a big one hits Los Angeles, thousands of people are going to try to find my house. So I'm not sure if this is really a clear question, but so I have an active dream life, and recently this past year I've had a couple dreams where it's been kind of dream within a dream and a dream within a dream within a dream. Um, so one, have you ever really heard of that outside of obviously the movie? The research I've done a little bit has been what's kind of like a false awakening, which is where you wake up in your own bed kind of doing your daily activities, and that's mm -hmm. not the case for me. When I wake up, I'm actually in that first dream. Mm -hmm. um, and the other part is the deepest part of the dream always tend to be kind of demonic. Mm -hmm. kind of, if I can best describe that. Mm -hmm. So I don't really know the question to the latter half, but what do you know of that? Is it really anything, or have you heard of it before? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, heard about it. Lived it. I have um, what in my dreamscape appears to be a regular visitor in the form of a demon who assumes corpses in various states of decomposition exclusively of people I love who tells me how about people are going to die and suffer and there's nothing I can do about it. True story. And every time this demon shows up, I go, yeah? How's your family? <laughs> I'm not kidding. Or I'll be like, do you watch Sports Center? Never answers me. Cracks me the hell up, though. <laughs> uh, so we're going to go two places in the answer. One is narcolepsy and sleep paralysis, and the other is how dreams happen in the brain. Start with narcolepsy and sleep paralysis. You have systems in your brain whose job is to paralyze you while you're dreaming. Why? Because you do dramatic things in dreams. And if you do that while asleep, without conscious awareness of what's happening, you'll do weird stuff like walk off a cliff or start a fight with someone who can absolutely kick your ass. 
You know what I mean? Like just bad decisions are made when you're literally not conscious. So your brain goes, I've got an idea. Let's just cut it all off at the brainstem, yeah? That's what happens, unless you sleepwalk, right? You ever known a sleepwalker? My wife and my children all sleepwalk. So Jenny will sit up in the middle of the night and be like, the sky and fire thumb, where's the cat? And I go, we don't have a cat. But it's okay, I'll find it. I'll find the cat. Just lay back down. I'll find the cat. She lays back down. She's gone again. The kids will come walking in. My oldest daughter is my favorite because she walks in every time like this. <laughs> Don't say a word. Just... And I always go, I know, sweetheart. Come on, I'll show you. And I take her. Lay her back down. She goes to sleep. So the flip side of that is sleep paralysis. Sleep paralysis is where you start to wake back up, but your body goes, no, it's just a dream. And it's really freaky because you can't move. And you're in this twilight state of awareness. And so what tends to happen is people, as you've researched, wake up and they see their surroundings and they feel like they're awake, but they can't move. And sometimes at the furthest physical point from them is a dark figure. But because they can't move and they still feel sleepy, they fall asleep or they close their eyes and they open their eyes again. Only now the dark figure is closer and closer and sometimes the dark figure sits on your chest. Why? Because when you have sleep paralysis, you have feel a weird sense of heaviness. And that's how dreams work. Dreams take random firings of neurons and they filter them through the meaning-making hardware of the brain and they form images and narratives out of them. That's why a heaviness of sleep paralysis becomes a demonic fi- figure, dark figure, sitting on your chest. Why? Your brain's trying to scare you out of sleep paralysis because you're super vulnerable right now. The problem is, <laughs> feelings of anxiety and fear tend to deepen sleep paralysis. So this can be a debilitating thing for people. I get sleep paralysis. If I go to bed at the wrong time or get too tired or take a nap during the day, Probably two out of three, I get sleep paralysis. And the dark figure shows up and tries to scare me. And because I'm super analytical, I go, I'm in sleep paralysis. <laughs> and so I've learned to scream as loud as I can at the top of my lungs, which makes me do this in the real world. And then my, my sweet, sweet, beloved wife will take my hand and just shake it a little bit, and then I'm out. I can send this signal. Now, thank goodness, my wife is such a light sleeper. If she's deeply asleep and I go, she wakes up and frees me from my sleep prison. Before that gift, I had to learn to calm myself and go into a deeper state of sleep to kind of reset this whatever's stuck, and get out of it. So when you have recurring dreams that are frightening, flight or fight is a survival reaction. So usually when you have scary things in your dreams, your brain's trying to wake you up. You might have to pee. There might have been a noise outside. Brain's trying to get you aware. Or you become afraid of the dream imagery itself. So the brain tries to wake you up if you're deep enough asleep, it just makes a really terrifying dream, 
which is something you remember. And because dreams are basically associated with random firings of neurons and neural networks in your brain, what's in your dreams tend to be the things with the largest neural networks associated with them, which are things you're very afraid of, things you have anxiety about, things that you love dearly and think about a lot, and weirdly stuff that just happened. Now, take that understanding and now filter your recent dreams. Why did a demon chase you into the office where you were naked in a meeting in front of your boss? Because you have a lot of neurons associated with all those things, and as they randomly fired, your brain's meaning-making machinery had to tell some story in the same way it told you a story when you ducked that wrench. So that's what happens with occurring dreams. The memory of a dream creates a suggestion or an increased neural significance that the next night when the custodians start coming through your brain to clean up unnecessary dendrites and synaptic connections, they fire again, neurons that fire together, wire together, you've just deepened the likelihood of this dream. What can you do? Good sleep hygiene helps. Our dreams tend to be frightening and more vivid when we're sleep deprived. Guess who's sleep deprived? Almost all of you. I'm watching you yawn as soon as I say the word sleep. (laughs) 60% of this room just went. Because you're sleep deprived because Facebook's so amazing and Netflix just one more. What are you missing? What, What is worth costing your health? and your effectiveness, your mental well-being, and your emotional balance, just to see if there's another like. The crown will be there tomorrow. <laughs> it will, I promise. Whatever you're doing, pro- oh, here's another thing. Your mattress in your room, your bed, two things happen on that mattress. Only two things. You can sleep. You do something else that starts with S. Snore. (laughs) Yes, sleeping and snoring. Actually, two of my favorite disciplines. Um, And when you do that, so another thing we tend to do that causes sleep paralysis, causes vivid dreams, is we tend to sit in bed and give ourselves weird stimulus that evolution didn't prepare us for, like a bright light held right in front of our face. That gives us a weird alienating feeling, like we feel known but also unknown. (laughs) My best friend likes this, but does she like me? (laughs) Then then that gets too much, so then we like turn on a giant glowing rectangle right by where we sleep, and we watch amazing and fantastic things happen. People way better than looking at us have, have... conflict on screen, they have romantic encounters on screen, dinosaurs chase people, spaceships make pew-pew noises in a vacuum, like all this incredible stuff that does not happen in the real world, we beam it into our retina and then we go, I think I'm tired enough now. No, still not. What's on Instagram? Right? So you're going to sleep better, you have less likelihood to have nightmares, less likely to have sleep paralysis. Except good sleep hygiene by sleeping seven to nine hours every night and not doing things other than sleeping or snoring in your bed. Hi, Science Mike. 
Hello. Um, I just want to start by saying that uh, your work, along with the liturgist work, has done more than I can explain, so I'm really grateful. Thank um, you. Thank you for taking the time to be here. Um, I actually have a question about that other S word, the non-snoring one. Okay. Um, we'll just go, we'll just go, and I, I mainly was a joke, this is a shame-free space, we can say sex, it's okay. Awesome. Um, I'm trying to decide how much personal information I want to divulge with this question. Um, just ask for a friend, that's what everybody else says. No, it's okay. I don't know. <laughs> Good call, though. Um, I saw my first um, sexual image when I was three years old, I mm -hmm. think, maybe four. Um, and since that time, I've had a really big um, issue with just um, sex addiction as well as pornography. Mm -hmm. um, and I've read plenty of, of and I, I was a, well, I don't, know if I, I don't know what I am currently, but I was a very conservative Bible-believing Christian for mm -hmm. a long time. Um, and so I read a lot of stuff that proclaimed to be science that said a lot, you know, a lot of anti-porn uh, advocacy that said, you know, it rearranges your uh, pleasure centers or whatever in the brain. I don't know a lot about science. but um, And also wanting to, I'm a very left-leaning person, um, consider myself a feminist by whatever degree a, you know, middle-class white person can do so. Um, uh, I just want to know, um, especially in regards to things like pornography, what is, is there a consensus on the science? Um, mm. how does, how does all that factor in? Mm. Um, based, and I know plenty about like trauma and triggers and stuff, you know, but, but outside of that, is there just any science that says for sure what happens to the brain when pornography and, and sexual imagery is constant? Okay. First, science doesn't say anything for sure about anything. If there's one mistake I see brandied about who tend to use the hashtag science, it's that science proves things or that science says. You know what Simon says? <laughs> Why? Because Simon's a person with feelings and opinions and a mouth. You know what isn't? The discipline of science that we have discovering information about the material world. Science ascribes confidence to beliefs using evidence. That's what science does. What evidence? Observation. That observation can include observing experiments. But then people go, well, then science can't look at things. It's not repeatable. Nope. Science can look for physical evidence of something that happened long ago, which is why science can talk about the Big Bang without us having to destroy the universe. So let's start there. Science proves nothing. So let's, let's dig through some current consensus around pornography, how it affects people, and its role in our culture. Let's do that without shame. Let me start here. You know who loves porn? Everybody. By the numbers, people who have never seen a pornographic image are incredibly rare. And the people that don't look at pornographic images regularly, be they male or female, make up significantly less than half the population. People look at porn. So what's that doing to us? I'm not like actually a huge fan of the whole purity culture thing. 
because um, I think we, when we assign sexual behavior primarily through the lens of shame and virginity, especially female virginity, we create strange dysfunction and obsession around sexual behavior. And I actually think that feeds pornography culture. And why do I think that? Because per capita rates for porn consumption are highest in religious areas. The more religious a state, the more religious a city, zip code, and neighborhood, the more likely people are to look at porn, the more frequently they look at porn, and the more likely they are to look at extreme pornography. The more likely they have to have some deep kink that has to be scratched. We're out here in godless California, <laughs> in the shadow of the Deaton Haven, Los Angeles, and people's consumption of porn in Los Angeles is less frequent and less extreme than people in Houston, Texas, or Atlanta, Georgia, or even Birmingham, Alabama. I'm still using major metros. The smaller the community, the more religious, the deeper the porn itch, and the more frequently it is scratched. Shame feeds sexual dysfunction and pornographic consumption. Period. So ironically, if we actually think people shouldn't watch porn, we'd have better results by not shaming people about porn. Instead, let's talk about supernormal stimuli. This is a pretty amazing thing. Scientists have discovered that, well, gosh, it's not just men that are visual creatures. Here's how you can tell if a creature is visual. <laughs> Does it have eyes? That's the big clue in biology to when animals have some visual orientation. Now, check this out. I want you to just look around. See if you can find a man in the room. Does he have eyes? Yes. So it's fair to say men have some visual component to their sexual activation. But watch this. See if you can see a woman in the room. And if you're on the subway, you know, right now, internet, look on the subway. Does she have eyes? Then there is a visual component to how she views the world and to sexual activation. Remarkable. Does your dog have eyes? Yes. But your dog is much more oriented with the activity of its nose, which is why dogs are so into butts. But they don't, like, they don't like big butts, like, because they look great. They're like, incredible. <laughs> this is just biology. Do you know that if you take a robin and you t in its nest, you put a larger, bluer, wooden egg that it will spend most of its energy trying to keep the fake egg warm than its real chicks? Because in its neurological makeup, blueness and egg size are associated with healthy chicks. Did you know that after the chicks hatch, if you literally put a fake 
wooden bird in the nest, a baby bird whose mouth is always open and who the inside of its mouth is redder than the real chicks in the nest. The mother will try to feed the fake chick head while the real chicks are more likely to starve. It's called a super normal stimulus, something natural. You figure out what works and you make it even bigger and even brighter. Obviously, humans don't do that. That's just an animal thing. We're not dumb enough to be more attracted to someone if their lips are redder because they smeared wax and pigment on them to simulate sexual arousal. That does not work on people. Obviously, men aren't more attracted to women if they try to make their complexions more smooth by putting on foundation and powders and blush to simulate, again, sexual arousal. Obviously, human men aren't more attracted to women if we use Photoshop to increase their hips in relationship to their waist. We don't fall for that. We're thinkers. you know, if we take pictures of men and we do a series of photographs and we subtly include signals in the photograph of higher or lower socioeconomic station, that the picture, if you put, make, make women look through 50 pictures and the same guy's in there three times, only we've changed his apparent socioeconomic station. They'll change their attractive rating of this person the higher they look socioeconomically. Doesn't work on people, supernormal stimulus. So what about porn? What about porn where everybody's having the time of their life? Big, huge cartoon eyes on people. Giant eyebrows. I can't go further in a family environment. Uh, Other accentuated body features on both men and women doing things that non-Olympians aren't capable of in the bedroom. You know what I mean? So what happens when you expose a generation to that as their sexual education? Well, I know exactly what happens. Anxiety. An attempt to try things that they think each other will find attractive but neither enjoys. Oh, also super fun erectile dysfunction. Higher rates of consumption of pornography are associated with higher risks of erectile dysfunction in men. That's from the anti-porn community, but that research holds up. What? Well, it does turn out supernormal stimulus is not great for us. It doesn't matter that it scratches some unimaginable itch in our brain that nature never could. You know what else does? Cheeseburgers. <laughs> cheeseburgers are super normal stimulus. What happens if you eat cheeseburgers for every meal? <laughs> Is this the healthiest way to approach nutrition possible? Probably not. My organs are packed in fat. That doesn't increase longevity or quality of life. Cheeseburgers are amazing. 
but maybe not every day for lunch. Visual stimulation from things like pornography on, in moderation is probably not terrible for people, but our tendency is to create a compulsion around pornography that is fueled by shame. When I was younger, well, I didn't get into porn at first because I'm old, and when I was young, if you want to look at porn, it went like this. You had to dial a modem, and then you had to, like, there was no Google. So you had to, like, find a directory on, by, like, asking people anonymous when they use that, like, anybody got some naked girls? <laughs> and then people were like, oh, yeah, I've got these amazing images. 2534x.jpg. 397821.jpg. And you just had to like scroll through numbers and just guess what might be in the picture. And there's a calculated risk because once you click that picture, it's going to do like this. Just scan back and forth a line at a time. It's like, okay, those are nice bangs. This could be going somewhere good. Mom's home! Or God forbid your sister picked up the phone. You couldn't resume a download. Now you just had this much of a lady. <laughs> so when I was young, the option that 4K, HD, streaming, VR, whatever, not a thing. Uh, but when I got into college, I got like the first high-speed internet connection in my town. And then you would click the image. It would like basically load. Now video, forget it. But I remember like that was amazing. Like whenever I want I can see women without clothes on. Funny how quick my basic perception of women went from relational to, whoa, their clothes off. So ethically, I question the way that pornography is produced and distributed, what it does to our basic reference frame toward each other as people, and the basic neurological health. But I say all that, I don't want to shame you. What about someone with a severe physical disability who, because of the judgment standards of society, finds it very difficult to find the company of other people? I, uh, on this very podcast, interviewed a porn performer once. Because someone asked me, is it ever ethical to produce pornography? And I didn't know, so I asked an expert. And she told me that no one starts working in the porn business on the best day of their life. And that for a long time she was exploited, and she was forced to do things that she didn't want to do with her body, and that it she resorted to drugs, which created an addiction that producers could exploit. Then she got clean. And today, she mainly works on webcams. And that a lot of her clients who turn the camera on are physically disabled, homebound, and just want to be seen by another person. 
I frustrate the heck out of people because I can be more I can be morally ambiguous. But I have very little interest in shaming a woman who spends or demonizing a woman who spends many of her waking hours delivering companionship and comfort to people the rest of us subtly shift our weight sideways as we walk past. So I, I don't believe in moral absolutes. I do believe that when considering the issue of pornography, we must contemplate supernormal stimuli and economic exploitation. It is usually people who are economically or educationally disadvantaged who become porn performers or people with addiction issues. And every time we go to famous websites and don't pay a nickel, but ads are served, we are creating an economic incentive structure that preys on the bodies and dignity of human beings. So where a case can be made that people are not coerced and economically empowered as they produce porn, I'm not going to judge people who watch it, but I would encourage everyone to take a careful and introspective posture when you, when you consider how pornography causes you to view other people, how it causes you to view yourself, and how in control of your pornography consumption you are or are not. And finally, for anyone listening in their 20s, who says, but science, Mike, you don't understand. I'm horny all the time. and There's just not that many people who want to have sex with me all the time. I have fantastic news. One day you two will be almost 40, and you'll barely even remember what that was like. It does get better. <laughs> but you still may want a cheeseburger. Hello. So it's my, it's my understanding that science treats our universe as a closed system. Um, that being said, is the speed of light constant? And if it's not, what sort of repercussions would that imply on our material reality or the implications of empirical data? Okay, great. Good question. Everybody catch it? You with me? Is the universe a closed system or not? Is the speed of light constant? What implications would it have for science if the speed of light was not constant? What's the universe? This is a big place to start because this is a word that gets beat up and abused in the media. The universe, in terms of science, is very simple. It's absolutely everything. What about the multiverse? The multiverse is not about multiple universes. It's about multiple observable universes each of which are a fragment of the entire universe. If I unpack that, we're here till 2 a.m., but I did a podcast on it called The Multiverse. Um, so, is the universe a closed system? <laughs> Can you add more to everything? We surmise no, so we call it a closed system. If we added something to it, it would have come from somewhere else, and guess what? That's also part of the universe. So it's just a, it's a tricky definition thing. However, in most of what we do in science, 
It involves the observable universe. Why? Because we can observe it, and that's the foundation of scientific inquiry. So, to our knowledge, is the speed of light, 186,000 miles per second and change, constant throughout the observable universe, totes. The math checks out with every observation we've ever done. The speed of light is the speed of light is the speed of light. The speed of light is not just constant, as in consistent, it's constant as in it's a foundational property of the entire universe. Could I have a volunteer? Come on up. Could I have another volunteer? Come on up. Everybody just buckle your seatbelt real quick. This is going to be a party. By the way, internet, I apologize. You can't see these visual references. I'll try to narrate. Okay. You stand right here, and you and I will go here toward these balloons. Okay? Like this. Just stay right here. We're going to stay on the same line. So, here's what I want you to do. I want you to, everyone to imagine that when I say go, a photon is on the starting line too. Photon's a little piece of light, okay? And then we're going to run, and I'm going to imagine that I'm going to run at uh, two miles an hour. That's probably realistic for me. You're going to run at four miles an hour. For the sake of the metaphor, you just run faster than me. It won't be hard. Okay? okay? <laughs> you stay still. All right? You're the observer. We're objects in motion. All right? Remember the photons in this race. It's going to go from here to there at 186,000 miles an hour. On your mark, get set, go. All right, so you won. Your rate, the, the rate wasn't good. Let's do it again. You, 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 like, just do a proper run. I'll handle the difference, all right? Okay. On your mark, get set, go. Okay, so he, he got ahead of me, and then he got further ahead of me, right? So from your perspective, who won the race? Him. Him. He beat the photon. Yeah. The one going 186,000 miles an hour next to me that was invisible? Oh, oh, no. Yeah, it won. Just stick with me. That the, he, the photon won second, third, right? So here's a weird thing. Let's suppose instead of two miles an hour and four miles an hour, <laughs> I was going 1,000 miles an hour, and you were going 2,000 miles an hour, right? That would mean, from your perspective, I'm going how fast? 1,000 miles an hour. And you're going... From his perspective. From my perspective, how fast is he going? A, a thousand miles an hour. What? We disagree on his speed? How weird. How's that possible? Relative motion. Here's the weird thing about our universe. If you're seeing this as 186,000 miles per hour, right? And I'm going a thousand miles per hour, how fast am I seeing this? 185? I'm seeing it at 186,000 miles per hour. How fast is he seeing it running 2,000 miles per hour? It's 186,000 miles per hour. We all see the photon going the same speed, even though our velocities are different. How is that possible? 
How could that ever, ever work? Nothing else works that way. Because in order to make light do what light does, time warps. So the trick is, the three of us get to experience the passage of time at different rates, and the math will always check out so that a photon's going 186,000 miles per hour. That's Einsteinian relativity. Congratulations. You understand it now. <laughs> you didn't even have to do math. Thank you. That's great. Let's give a round of applause. So, what would happen... If that were not true, when we looked at things through telescopes, the predictions we make based on the relativistic behavior of space-time wouldn't be there. But every time we look, light's going 180. If you were going 185,000 miles per hour compared to me, you would still see light as going as 186,000 miles per hour. No matter how fast you go, now here's the trick. Unlike light, the closer you get to light speed, the more energy it takes for you to accelerate. So as you approach light speed, guess how much energy it takes for you to go light speed? Infinite energy. It takes infinite energy. There isn't infinite energy to put into you to accelerate you to light speed. That's why nothing other than light and massless particles can go the speed of light. Uh, if that were not the case, all of physics since Einstein would collapse. It would mean GPSs don't work. That would suck. Uh, it would mean Mercury's orbit around the sun would change. Mercury is the one planet going fast enough to have a relativistic orbit instead of a Newtonian orbit. So this isn't hypothetical. Even though we don't tend to go as fast as light speed, we do experience the effects of light speed as a constant in the observable universe. But what if, at the Big Bang, pockets of inflationary universes form separately, and you have multiple spatially infinite universes. Could you have a universe where the speed of light is 100 miles an hour? Totally. It'd be amazing. Nothing could really exist there. But if you visited it, you would be able to slow down your perception of time by jogging, because you'd be able to go a significant fraction of light speed. That'd be pretty cool. Planets couldn't form because gravity would also go 100 miles an hour. <laughs> That'd be a problem. But uh, if you could visit... Oh, also, yeah, jogging would also require incredible amounts of energy. So you'd basically just be motionless. So not as cool as I thought. Okay. Hi. Hi. So uh, I'm a nine. You're a nine. All right, somebody else a nine over here. Let's harmonize. Let's all just hang out, right? So in terms of everything we're talking about, morality, faith, all that, how much of it really comes down to, let's say, your personality, your number, the Enneagram? You mean my beliefs about them? Or yeah, the, I just yeah, love, okay. to hear, I love to hear your thoughts about it in terms of, like, does there, all this stuff really matter or are you really just going to go back to your number, whether it's in health or unhealth? 
Yeah, I think the Enneagram is a map, and maps can be very useful, but they're not reality itself. So if I use a road map to try to figure out the temperature, it's not going to help me very much, right? Because the map is just a way of navigating reality. If I get a temperature map on the Weather Channel, it's not going to help me to figure out how to get out to San Diego very well, right? So the maps have specific tools. So I think the Enneagram is a very useful map for interrogating personality, but I don't put the same confidence or rigor in it that I put in physics. What I like about the Enneagram is it helps me understand what I'm stuck, ways to get unstuck. It helps me understand maybe why I care about certain things and maybe why I should try intentionally to pay attention to some things I don't pay attention to. My tendency as a peacemaker, a nine on the Enneagram, is to always push aside my anger and to be uncomfortable with the anger of other people. Um, but the anger in the voices of women as they say time's up is actually just valid. The anger, when people say hashtag Black Lives Matter, when another teen is legally killed in the United States, it's valid. So my Enneagram work has taught me to pay more attention to their anger, to not be so uncomfortable, to not immediately go, it's okay, I'll help, I'll help. We don't have to be angry just because I had authority figures that scared me as a kid. And it also means I can pay attention to my anger. It doesn't mean it's like super great if I backhand people, but it means I should, my body, my brain, yes, my personality are telling me something when I get angry, and that's not something I should reflexively avoid. So the fact that I'm a nine on the Enneagram is why 48% of the listeners of Ask Science Mike are registered Republicans. You heard the orangutan joke, right? Why are 48% of, of the hundreds of thousands of people who listen to this podcast Republicans? Because I'm an Enneagram 9, and I don't judge them. And I, I actually kind of harmonize with and understand their motivations, and I understand how in their life experience and perspective, their actions and their thoughts and their beliefs make sense. But then I also understand why someone else feels threatened and indeed marginalized by those same beliefs. And the fact that I can pretty effortlessly walk a mile in anybody's shoes, I mean, I'm a really excellent translator because I'm a nine. So the Enneagram shows me how to lean into some strengths and find areas of growth as well, if that's important. But I don't know how fixed this stuff is. You know, I've always identified as an extrovert. I fell off a motorcycle and I scrambled my eggs. My brain, not those eggs. <laughs> um, they were fine. And now, like, groups of people stress me out. And I like to be quiet more than I used to. And I feel shy sometimes. I never felt shy before. I don't let my Myers-Briggs map invalidate the very real experience 
of being someone who's living with a traumatic brain injury. And no matter how successful the Enneagram map has been at explaining my life, I don't stress too much when that map loses detail or wears thin or even tears as I find myself in a new place. I found that a meaningful life is found as we learn to hold our metaphors more loosely so we can grab new ones as needed in order to love others more completely. Uh, This is kind of a short question, but um, is mental illness really incurable? And if it is, why so? Why did I do one more question? We just had this beautiful moment together. There's no such thing as mental illness as a monolith. Mental illness is an incredibly varied set of difficulties and disorders associated with cognitive and emotional processing. Some mental illnesses are more treatable than others. Some mental illnesses are, I guess, quote, curable, or at least very successfully treatable. Um, Our approach to mental health in America is pretty terrible. In Latin American cultures, people... uh, who are schizophrenic and hear voices, hear voices that most often speak to them in affirmation. And so people aren't typically institutionalized for schizophrenia because they're pretty cheerful. Because they start cooking something and they drop an egg and a voice says, it's okay, you're doing your best. Well, great, I don't need to treat that. In fact, I'd be pretty mad if you took away the cheerful voices who tell me, like, it's going pretty well. Their voices tend not to tell them that they are Jesus Christ here to save the world, as so often happens to people in our culture. My thoroughly unqualified, email me if you want, opinion is that um, the twin engines in American thought of the capitalistic drive to be exceptional, (laughs) the fuel in that engine, which is a deep seat of shame and unworthiness, is what so often turns our disorders darker. Why do we keep walking into schools and shooting children? That doesn't happen anywhere else. Not at the numbers it happens here. Why are so many of us killing ourselves? We've created a culture where we're ashamed of who we are if we don't fit some prescriptive notion. I cry all the time. When I was a kid, that wasn't manly. I didn't like football, so people thought I was gay. And by the way, that was an insult. 
So at the same time, by calling me gay, I felt horrible. But so did the young person right next to me figuring out their sexuality who actually fit in with everybody. What did we both hear? You're not good. And then our religious narrative here. You're horrible and you deserve hell unless you say the right prayer. God only loves you if he can kill his son. What? What? So we never touch people unless we want to have sex with them, which means so often our touch is predatory, and yet we're social primates who experience crippling anxiety if we are not frequently touched. That's a good situation to put people in. I need touch. The best way to touch that's socially acceptable is to have sex. So I'll have my touch be a conquest of other people. I'm at a point in my life, I love a good snuggle with a friend. It's okay if a friend's a guy. It doesn't mean I want to copulate with them. I really only like to copulate with my wife. And then if I haven't had too much to eat. I don't think, is mental illness curable, is the right question, and I don't say that to stigmatize your question. I think, how do we relate to each other is the important question. I think we should ask, what is it about our culture that makes us so afraid to be honest and vulnerable and intimate with one another? What is it about our culture that encourages us to be sharks instead of sheep, to win at all costs, and never display weakness. And by the way, before you tell me that women are traditionally more emotionally open and vulnerable, that's true. But they're also trained from a very young age to view each other as competitors in a race to be a prize. I'm not a mental health professional. I can't counsel people out of mental illness. I'm unqualified to do research. So what do I do? I travel the country and I tell you all that I love you. I'm so glad you are here. And afterwards, I'm going to be in the lobby and I'll say hey to everyone who wants to say hello. And if someone has touched you in a way that has traumatized you, guess what? I will not under any circumstances try to touch you. But if you're lonely and you need a hug, it would be my sincere pleasure to give you the most non-predatory hug you've ever gotten in your life. It takes our individual action to fight a system that says we're all just cogs in a machine, we're just points of economic value to extract. Because I believe that this all started in chaos and chance from a cosmic singularity that exploded into a big bang. And that if you look deep enough philosophically, life is utterly devoid of meaning. And I believe one day I heard God talk to me and I made God a promise that said, if you'll stay with me, I'll spend the rest of my life being broken and poured out for the healing of others. My friends, I am here to fully embrace 
The beauty of life is revealed by science and the mystery of the idea that God loves us and God wants us to love each other. And my approach to people with mental illness is to say, I don't care about cultural conventions. I don't care that we label who you are as ill. I love you. And I'm so glad you're here. And sometimes I freak people out too. So my friends, wherever you are tonight, whatever you came into this room, I hope that you leave knowing two things. One, science is awesome. And two, you are special in love exactly as you are. Thanks for coming.